All right, we are in part two of this epic journey with Terry Mugan, who's flown over from California. Check out part one if you've not seen it. It's the early years, upbringing in an abusive care home situation, then gets into the street gang level of stuff and quickly getting professional and proficient at armed robberies. So the crimes are escalating rapidly and we left off with... Uh, we were just about to talk about the surveillance by the Serious Crime Squad, but you had a story about Joey. Joey, yeah. Yes. Joey. So eventually, after that was acquitted, Joey was my partner, and he'd asked me to... There was two other guys from the city of Liverpool in that lived in the city centre. So Joey had asked me, he said, can we bring these other two guys and They've got a job for us to do. And he said, go and get Terry. And I went, okay, I'll take a look. But I'd, I'd heard of them, these two lads. And they were notorious, but no, they'd never been caught. And they were pretty tough lads. So I decided I'd meet them. And they, they knew everyone that I knew. And so they approached me and they said, um, there's a, a van coming to, um, through the city. And Terry, do you fancy having it? So I said, whereabouts is it? And they told me it was um, a, um, a TSB that was delivering a large amount of money. So I asked them the situation and they said, there's quite a bit of money in there. We've had the surveillance on it. We've had people go into the bank, a few of our friends, and it's quite sufficient money. I said, yeah, okay. And I'll, yeah, I'll have a go. So next thing, I didn't know I was under surveillance. And Joey was quite a bit of a tough kid. And these two fellas were pretty good. So I said, well, who's going to take him? That was the plan. So there was a bus stop on Scotland Road by the TSB. We have the safe house off Westminster Road set up. Then we have another house up in Anfield set up by a friend, my friend's house, because I could trust him. I knew, I knew what I was going to do. So we parked the van across the street. We all got tooled up. We got our masks on and we waited by the bus stop. It was about 1.30. And it was one of the guys' jobs to jump on the guard, take him. Then I had, a, I had a special way of getting the box off them. If you get them down, it's called a one, two, three pin, pin down move, where you get them on the floor. And then the arm was, the foot would go on the arm here and would squash the muscle. And then they'd release the box here in the hand. That was my pin down move. So I said, you get them down. I said, and I'll do the pin down on them. Anyway, we're waiting there, we're anxious, and we've got these big, it's in October, and it's a cold day. So it was a good opportunity to get nice and covered up. We were tooled up to pieces. If anything went wrong, we were just going to, basically our job was not to hurt anybody. That was our motive. But our motive was just to get the money, and we'll do one. So Joey had just been in jail. He'd just been, just done three years for something, I can't remember what it was, it could have been a robbery, and, and then he was back at it. So that's the way we were. So Joey, come on, okay, Terry, so we parked across Scotland Road in the flats, put the van there, and we had this house in Anfield to go to. Next thing, Joey comes over, we're at the bus stop. Joey's down the side, we mates at the bus stop. Soon the van comes, the security van comes, secure the car. 
we waited for him to get out and then what did you do knock on to give it a knock for him to release the box inside so they knocked him my friend just jumped on him I ran at him locked him down done the pin down move on him within I think it was about two in his statement he said um, he had the box off me in three seconds he's actually got it off me that was in his statement we ran across Scotland Road into the van I was the only one that got in the van I didn't know what the other two were doing they just done one they got away so I'm in the van Joey's driving the van and I've got the box next thing we're going through Scotland Road up Vauxhall Road and then we, we cut into Anfield and as we're going up this hill called Everton Valley these police cars are coming down they've got the lights flashing there 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 next thing Joey said they're turning around they're coming after us and I went what? he said yeah they're on our sail Teddy and I went just keep going Joey to the house just keep going there so next thing Joey hits a car hits a car smashes into a car he's panicking Bump. I said just keep going when we get to the house just get out and do one okay so next thing we get to this um, house called Randolph Street in Anfield and Joey jumps out I jumped out all the bit, all the coppers are behind us and there must have been about 10 of them all the pandas are behind us so we we runs through this house runs through an entry I've got the box I get to Joey gets lost I go to another house to the safe house to my friend's house locks the door takes the box upstairs and it's the six flats in there so I hide in the top flat get the box and I put it under the bed next thing we're surrounded I can't get out the police just come in they smashed the door down eventually got up to the, the top floor of the flat kicked it in came in grabbed me they got me I was I was in there alone because my friend wasn't home they got me put the cuffs on me and they started battering me kicking up me and come on we fucking got you now next thing they takes me down gets me in the Black Mariah boom straight to St Anne Street that's just a quick question how did they go straight to you? Is there a trace or something in the box? No. How just, did you know to go to exactly where you was? Well, because they'd followed us. Okay. Because I was running. Yeah. And they knew that I'd, I'd gone to that house. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, they knew that I was in okay. the house. They were right behind me. There was yeah. about fucking 20. There's no hiding. Yeah, there was no hiding this time. Yeah. Couldn't get out of it. So next thing they get me, next thing all the serious crime squads from the city come. Ah, oh, they've got me now. So next thing, within this... We're in this cell, and I hear Joey next door. I hear Joey, and he's going, Teddy, are you in there? I went, yeah, all right. He said, have you been charged? I went, yeah. He said, we're going to magistrates in the morning. I said, have you been charged? He went, yeah. Anyway, they charged us with um, robbery, with force. And in the van, they found all the tools. They found an hatchet. They found, um, it was like a small handgun, and then they found a, um, a pickaxe handle and they found a hammer so they had all the evidence so anyway early hours in the morning we're getting we got took to the um, city centre the Bridewell and it was the most I thought oh, I've had it now you know my time's I'm done they've got me banged to rights 
And Joey's like, Terry, you know, I've just done two years in jail, you know, was, you know, we might get 10 years. So anyway, we go to the magistrates, straight away custody, gets put in custody. They've got us now. Anyway, we go to my old aunt, goes to Risley, gets in Risley, and gets banged up together, me and Joey. So we're doing our just thing, just carrying on slowly. So one day, I thought it was very unusual. Joey got a visit. And they called him and said, um, Joey, right? And he gets this visit. And he goes out. And I'm just sitting on my own. I thought, I wonder what's going on here? He's got a visit. You know, it's not visiting time. <sighs> it was a bit odd. So when he came back, and then in the afternoon we're on the exercise yard, and he said to me, I've just had a visit. I said, I oh, know, yeah, who's that? Who's, who's you get a visit off? He said it was um, a couple of the top serious crime squad from St. Anne Street. I said, yeah. And he said, um, I've got them boxed off. I've got it sorted. He said, I've, he said, I'm, I'm, he said I'm giving them 5,000 quid. He said, and we're going to get out. And I went, what? I said, no, it's impossible. I said, they've been after me for years, Joey. They're not going to let me out. <laughs> and I'm, I'm going, really? He went, yeah. He said, I said, no fucking way, lad. They're not going to let me out. He said, no, Terry, we're going to get out. And I started asking questions and I didn't believe it. I wouldn't believe it either. And no. I think no. I just take the money and run. Yeah. So anyway, what happened is um, the detective, he used to do surveillance on me when I was out on bail for the um, the post office van, I had 24-hour surveillance, and his name was Smith, and that's where I used that name for the woman in the trial. It was the same police officer. I used his name. That's how I, I, I knew it was him. So next thing, we go to the, the magistrates, and they bring us up, and um, the magistrate was Wharton, he was a horrible bastard. He was just, he, he just put you in custody. You couldn't get out. Even with kids for shoplifting. And me and Joey goes up, goes in there. And um, he was a bit hunched over, but he had like a funny back. He must have had arthritis or scoliosis in his back. The way he, he, he leans over in the court. And he looked and he had these glasses and he spoke out the side of his mouth. He went, and these are the two robbers that did the robbery. <laughs> and Mogan, he's been, he's been in front of me before. I know him. And, <laughs> and I'm going, fuck you, you old bastard, yeah. <laughs> and so what's the situation? Where's the police officers in this case? This is a very serious crime. And where are they? And the prosecution said, um, they're not here to oppose the bail, you know. What am I supposed to do? He stuck the magistrate. He doesn't know what to do. And it was causing mayhem in the court. <laughs> and Joey's looking at me. I thought, fucking hell, what's he going to do here? We're going to get out here. So next thing, next thing, he comes to a decision and he says, okay, you must call the police station and tell them I'm, I'm, I'm postponing this till two o'clock this afternoon. Um, put them back in custody. I can't let them out. I can't let them go. I need the police here. And uh, so next thing, we go downstairs, me and Joey. And next thing, 
Joey says, don't worry, Terry. I said, what happens if they show up? I said, they might fucking show up. And he goes, no, they're not going to show up. He said, they've took an holiday, two weeks holiday. No. <laughs> yeah. He said, they took two weeks They took two weeks holiday. So next thing, he goes up at two o'clock, there's still no fucking serious crime squad. So the magistrate says, oh, but I, I, I have no choice. I've got to let you go. <laughs> <laughs> Oh my god! Oh my god! It's unbelievable. So we said, so me and Joey have just done one of the biggest robberies on Scotland Road, and the magistrate is letting us go because of the cops. Joey's got the cops. Joey's got the cops all boxed off. But then, so he walks out the court. Walks out the court. My wife was there, and Joey's wife was there. They didn't know each other, and um, but he was with two gangsters, Joey. Big heavy gangsters that I knew, and um, we'd had a Chicago warfare in the seventies in Liverpool, and I knew a lot of them on the bouncers, on the doors, and that you know. But I, I just said hello to them, and never ever got involved with any of them. But there was two of them showed up when Joey got out, and they knew me, and uh, they went, "All right, Terry," and I said, "Yeah, all right, how are you?" And he said, and I just looked at them, and I went, "What are you doing with him?" And I thought, "This is a bit heavy, isn't it?" And I said to Joey, um, where are you going? He went, I'm just going down here. And what he'd had, he'd had a plan that he was going into the Bridewell to meet Smith to make a statement. He'd gone into the Bridewell with these two guys. They were his minders. And um, I said to him, hey, mate, be fucking careful what you're doing, you know. I'm telling you, I just sensed it. I knew what he was up to. So next thing, he goes in the bridewell, he makes a statement. He said that he had nothing to do with the robbery, and it was me. Oh, man. And he said that he'd lent me the van. But he didn't name the other two fellas, only me. So that would put him off the hook. So next thing, at the committal, I got the, the depositions, and I read them, and it was all in there. So I kept it quiet. How did that feel though, reading that initially? Yeah, and the betrayal. Well, obviously we're gonna he's gonna he's gonna suffer. We're gonna take him serious consequences against him. And later on his life would be the there would be a contract on his life to kill him. Did you feel though like just so let down and it was an emotion? Well, yeah. Well, you, you know, you realised he had a, a, a big reputation. He had a big reputation. He went on to have a bigger reputation when he was, you know, in, on the on the importation, and he was very well respected in Liverpool. But I didn't respect him. After this, I thought, no, you're, you're going to get it, mate. We're going to get you. You know, we are going to get you. So anyway, what we did, there was another plan in the city centre for the same four guys to hijack a security van next to Water Street. It was a place called Williamson, Williamson Square and it was a bank that we'd watched and they were carrying a large amount of money for, and that money would be delivered to all the, the building sites in Liverpool. So we planned it like for three months, about two months, three months, and we had the plan out to get away, where we were going to go. But in between that, we'd been training, we'd been going to Formby Beach and we'd do like, really physical training, like fighting with each other, putting each other on the floor. 
running up and down the sand dunes, doing five to eight miles a day, really getting really fit. If if there was ever something would go wrong in one of these jobs, that's what we always did. And we'd always go to the boxing gyms in Liverpool and we'd always do heavy training, you know. So this day, I'm on the bail and I'd lost it. I'd, I'd just actually lost my mind because we'd lost that money. And I thought, well, we'll make it up on the next one. So this morning was set and it was nine o'clock in the morning. The security, security van would arrive at Williams Square but he had to park outside Williamson Square. So we're tooled up, everything. We would meet at 8.45. But this time there was no cars involved because we could run through the city. We know the back entries of the city and where we're going to go. So we decided, okay, we'd all meet at 8.45. And it was at, um, it was at a Bernie's Inn, a restaurant, and it was in a cellar. And we got tooled up put the mask on and we were ready. The van came, he goes in the bank, but however, there was only three of us. Joey never showed up. He doesn't show up. The other two guys show up. I show up, there's, there's three of us. So I, you know, we didn't think nothing of it at the time. We thought, well, you know, there's three of us, we can take him. So I told me, buddy, I said, you go behind him and I want you to stop him in front of the van so that he can't put the box in the van. Then I'll come down behind him. I'll do the pin move on him. I'll just get him down with a, a, a headlock, a one, two, three, bang. I've got him. I've got the box. And then we run through an alleyway, and then we close the door behind us, and we lock it. However, bump. Next thing, as we're doing the robbery from both ends of Dale Street, as you come around Dale Street by the wine lodge in Liverpool, Two, two pandas come round and then they block the other end of the street off and they've got the, the street blocked off and they're coming behind the security van as we're doing it. We were set up. So anyway, I had the box and one of the coppers is chasing me. So I go right through the city and um, there's a Lloyd's Bank and a, a new Lloyd's Bank. So I took a car park and I got up at the stairs in the car park and I... I laid under the car with the box and I was just watching for any footsteps. I was well ahead of the busy. We were well ahead of them because we were so physically fit. So next thing, I left the box under the car. I thought, I can't take it. And then there was a large, I think it was about probably £90,000 in it. And I thought, well, I don't want to carry this through the city. We had no cars. It was a different, totally different situation. So I thought, well, if I leave this here. But then my mind was panicking, thinking the city was swarming. But outside Lloyd's Bank, there was a bus stop. And it was the 17D going to Anfield, past Liverpool's ground. And I thought, I'll, I'll just leave it here, under the car. And I went, fuck it, I give in. I'd actually give in, I just, I just left it. Goes down. I took my balaclava off, I dumped it. I took my tools off, I dumped them. Next thing, I took the 17T bus. Went to my mother's house and had a cup of tea with my brother. He said, where have you been? Oh, I said, I've just been to town. What's wrong with you? I said, oh, something went wrong. 
My brother wouldn't say nothing. He's one of them guys, you know. So next thing, that was it. That was the end of it. Next morning, I thought, just, I was laying in bed. Laying in bed. Wife's asleep. Cantrell Farm. I had this lovely place. And all the gangsters had been there. They had parties and that. And, and it was like quiet. And I had it like a penthouse, you know, from the money we'd made. And I had brand new cars and Cortinas. And we had, you know, we'd, had, we'd done well. So next thing, about six o'clock in the morning, bump, the door just comes right off the hinges. Bump, about six of them come in. I'm in bed and I've got the shock of my life. Copper puts a gun to my head and he says, get out of fucking bed. You're under arrest. And I went, get that gun away from me, mate. Fuck off. Because that's how, you know, I was crazy at the time. I said, get that gun out of my face. I said, now get the fuck out of it. Get up. They got me, they pinned me on the floor. My wife screaming. And I went, oh, they've got me here. So next thing, they take me in, they search the house. There's nothing in the house. They tear the house apart. Kitchen everywhere, looking for money and everything. Never, ever found anything. So what happened was, they take me into St. Anne Street. And I'm under the surveillance of getting questioning. And they're asking me, well, you're involved in this, you're involved in that. And they said, um, we're going to get you on um, quite a few robberies. It'd be approximately four of them. They said, you hijacked a security van outside the gyro with pickaxe handles and you escaped with £73,000. And... Um, I looked at the file. As I was sitting there, this cop came in from a serious crime squad and it had me, I seen the file and I looked over at it and it said, Operation Transit, Terry Mugan. And as I looked at it, I went, hmm, wonder what they've got here. So I just usually, you know, we just, our, our skills from when we were a kid, we just absolutely stayed silent. So I'm in, I'm in, the police station goes on for about 12 hours and I'm in my underwear and I've got a blanket around me and there's just no food, no solicitors, no nothing. I thought, so the copper says to me, I tell you what, why don't you admit to one of them? He said, I tell you what, if you admit to the gyro and bootle, we'll let you off with the other three. <laughs> and I'm going... I'm going under my breath, fuck off. <laughs> Get the fuck out of it. Who the fuck are you talking to? And uh, I just felt like saying, you know, you're talking to one of the fucking safest men in Liverpool that will never say a fucking word, mate. I've never said a word in my life. So what he said to me, he said, we, we want to get you for attempted murder on the Moss Lane post office that you were found not guilty on for attacking him with a hammer. That man got seriously injured. And next, I got the shock of my life. He said, we've got your friend, John Lee. He was pulled in for the bootle job on the gyro and the 73,000. He said, he's admitted to doing the one in Sefton. Was well, he making with, that up? Yeah, or had he really done no, it? no, they got him. They got him. And so he got pulled in. He actually got pulled in on the job. For Bootle on the gyro for 73,000. They thought it was me and they thought it was him 
because I was connected with him with the one in, in um, Sefton where he'd punched the guy through the window and they actually said to him, we're not letting you out. So John, we're going to get you. And he admitted to punching the guy through the window and he gets charged. <sighs> so they said to me, Teddy, if you come up with this, we'll let you go. You admit with John Lee that you'd planned the Moss Lane post office hijacking. And I just looked at them under my breath and I used myself to talk and went, fuck off. You're fucking joking, aren't you? So next thing, anyway, I'm in there. 12 hours had gone by. No solicitor. They wouldn't give me a solicitor. 12 hours had gone by. But this big CID walked and he kicked the door. He went, get him up. Get him up. Take him to the front of the sergeant. So they go to the front. There's about six of them. And uh, they'd been there all day. They kept asking me. I just wasn't having none of it for many of them. Next thing, sergeant go, what's what's going on here? Um, he'll be charged with four robberies. And he goes like that. Looks at the, the CID and he goes, his name is Walker and Bailey. And he went, well, there could be a problem. I'm just waiting for the court. There's going to be a prison strike. We can't take any prisoners. And I'm going, wow. And I'm standing there in my undies with the big handcuffs on. And I'm thinking, oh, come on, come on. I hope there's a prison strike. And they, and they can't take me. And I said, ah, nah, they'll take me. They're going to do There's no way in the world they're going to let me go. Next thing, the sergeant says, um, take him back in. No one waits 15 minutes. And I was on my own. They must have been talking to the sergeant. And I heard them say, they cannot let this man go. So next thing, they come in back to me and they said to me, okay, you're going to be charged with four robberies. Um, if you come clean, Teddy will go. We'll probably get 15 years. If we get you on the four year, if, if we get you on the four robberies, and I knew the four robberies, what they were talking about, I knew who'd done them, who was involved, and I was part of some of it. And they said to me, probably the judge will give you 25 years. You'll get 25 years. So I'm standing there, I thought, fuck this, I'm saying nothing. I'll take a fucking a chance. I've never, ever since I was a kid, when I stole from the milkman, I never, ever admitted anything in my life. And I'm, I wasn't about to start it now, even though I'd gone into the big time. And so they called me back out. And um, the sergeant said to me, um, Mugen, I want you to come back here tomorrow. And I looked at him and I went, we're giving you 24 hours bail. And I just looked at him and I went, Okay. And I had the cuffs like that. And it, the cuffs were on me. And I just turned like that and I went to that, that to the detective. Okay, I'll see you tomorrow. Okay, can you, can you take the cuffs off me? And they all started shouting at the sergeants. We, no, you can't release him. You've got to, you've got to get someone in power. This man's got to stay here. And the sergeant, I've told you, we've just had orders from the government. 
We cannot take any prisoners. There's going to be a strike. So anyway, they took the cuffs off me and it was killing them because they'd been after me for years. So it was going to get blown again. So I just thought, oh my God, this is the great escape. This is the great escape. So next thing I'm sitting there and they got a shirt and a pair of pants and they said, here, put them on. I said, all right, thanks very much. And I was in the city centre on um, St. Anne Street. And they said, okay, make sure you come back tomorrow. <laughs> so I walked down and I just fucking walked out. And I went, I smelled the fresh air. And it was a, a cool night. Mm. It was a cool night. It was actually, um, what, what month was it? It was, um, it was December. It was December. And I thought, I'll, I'll shoot up Scotland Road. And I knew everyone there. So I went to this guy's house called um, Jimmy London. I went to his house and I said to him, Jimmy, where does Tommy Gilday live? Because Tommy was a, f- a friend of mine. He'd been arrested for um, assaulting the police officer. And I got to know him well in Risley. And I was in the same cell as him. And I got to know Tommy. He was an upcoming hard case. And I went to Tommy and I went to Tommy, do me a favour, mate. I said, um, can you come to Eighton tomorrow to Cantrell Farm? I said, and pick me up, you and Jimmy. I said, and, um, I said, can you drive me to London? He said, yeah, all right, Terry. I said, I said, please be there at three o'clock in the morning. I'm going to leave at three. So Tommy drives me home to Cantrell Farm, knocks on the door. My wife opens it and she went, wow. I said, all right, everything okay? Yeah. So I thought, well, Actually, they're going to surveil the house. They're watching me. They're watching every move I'd, I'd gone. So I said to my wife, pack me a bag. And I told Tommy to, where to park the car in the tunnel so that if the coppers ever come through the tunnel, they couldn't get through it. I'm going to run through the tunnel. It was like a walkway. I said, park at the back of the tunnel and, you, and then flash your lights. I told my wife... She packed a bag. I said, go to your mother's house. I said, and get me 50,000 quid. I said, I want you to meet me tomorrow morning at Pan Am in London. She said, where are you going? I said, don't worry about it. Just do as I say. Get me the money. I've got a little bag. Be at Pan Am in the morning. Please. That's all I've got to say. So early hours in the morning, I looked out the window and I seen the car pulling up. So I got her open, I tied it to the window, to the handle, and I jumped right down from the first floor. I just jumped and I just kept running. And, and it was raining and the rain was coming down on it, it was freezing. And I had a mach on and that and a hut and a hat. Just jumped in the car. I went, all right, Tommy, go ahead, lad. Right up to London, him and Jimmy. And um, I drove to London. It was a, it was a, it was a, a, a very unusual... I, I actually, I, I didn't have a choice. It was either I was gonna, they were gonna get me, or I was gonna, I was gonna go down for a long time. And I, we drove to London, and I, I told them to take me to Pan Am Airlines, and they dropped me off. I said goodbye to Tommy and Jimmy, and um, I said I'll see you, I'll see you, mate. Thanks very much. And I, I walked in, and my wife was sitting there, and as we're sitting there, she went, "What are you doing? Where are you going?" And I'm sitting there in, in, uh, at the airport at Heathrow 
And I said, I don't know where I'm going. So I looked at all the flights. I said, shall I go to Spain? I said, Australia. And, you know, I had a 10-year visa in my passport for America. And and I'd met friends in Miami. I thought, shall I go to Miami? And then I got this thing came through my head when I was on the QE2. And Elizabeth Taylor had told me to go to Hollywood. And she'd actually said to me when I was young, why don't you be an actor? You'd make a brilliant actor. I said, no, I'm not an actor. She went, Terry, even if you were a butler in Hollywood, she said they'd love you. And anyway, I looked at the flight and I went, ah, fuck it, I'll go to LA. (laughs) (laughs) So I bought a ticket, a return ticket, and I said to my wife, I want you to sell everything. And I'd had a place in Southport. I'd bought, I'd got a custom caravan made, and it was it was the headquarters. It was at a, a park called Riverside where we would all meet and plan everything, and no one knew about it. I said, and I just had a custom made, and I said, I want you to sell it and sell me cars. I said, get all the money, and I want you to fly out, quit your job. And I felt terrible for my wife. And it took me back to the days of, like, of, um, Bigsy, Ronnie Biggs, what he had gone through. And I was feeling the same thing about Biggs. Because part of my life when I was young, I'd been on the run. And here I am now, really big, and I was going on the run. And I had this horrible feeling. So anyway, I said to my wife, I'll see you. And she went, where will you be? I said, well, I always remember Santa Monica. I'll go to Santa Monica. So anyway, I kissed her and I was I was bored in the flight and I was sick as a dog. And I couldn't say around. I was so emotional that it, 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 it had this grip on me that I'd, I was just, I was destroyed. But I thought, I've got to go. So I'll go get on the plane. And um, I sat at the back of the plane. There was four seats. And they were coming around giving me stuff and that. But I was actually, at the time I was sick. I started, the sickness started kicking in. I wasn't well. From the emotions and there was certain things that was wrong with me from what I'd been doing throughout my life. It was catching up with me mentally. So, get off in Los Angeles. Get off the plane. And in them days, it was like, it was like a bubble. And he just went through, went through the immigration, never asked any questions. And I came out and it was a lovely day. The sun was shining and it was lovely. So I said to this fellow, where's the taxis, mate? So I jumped in the taxi, got the taxi. I said, take me to Santa Monica, will you? I said, is the hotel a motel? Or? He went, yeah, yeah, I'll take you. So he ends up in this motel called the Carmel Hotel on 2nd Street off Ocean Avenue. And it was a beautiful night and looking at the palm trees and all that. So I goes in this bar and it was um, called the Cheshire Cat. It was an English pub. And I went in and the girl looked at me and I looked at her and I went and said, um, do you sell British beers here? She went, oh yeah, yeah. I said, what have you got? She said, Newcastle Brown, we've got this, we've got that. I said, just give me a Newcastle Brown. And she was nice like, and she went, where are you from? I said, Liverpool. She went, well, the chef, he's from Manchester. I'll go and tell him. So next thing, the chef comes out. 
And I said, all right, mate, how are you? I said, all right, how are you? I said, from Manchester, from Liverpool. He said, what are you doing here? I said, I've just got here for holiday. I'm on holiday. Oh, are you? Yeah. He said, there's a British bar up the street called the King George V. He said, there's a Liverpool felon in there. He's the chef. I said, all right. I said, I'll go up there later. So I was tired and all that, exhausted. Booked into the car motel. It was cheap. It was like, in them days, it was like, it was like $15. Oh, and I had loads of money with me. I had 50,000 quid. You know, it was good. It was good chunk of change and then you know what else was coming over as well want my wife for that and um so got my head down slept next thing i thought i'll take a walk up fourth street santa monica boulevard and seen the pub two o'clock in the afternoon sunshine and beautiful i was watching all the cadillacs go by in the day then all the lovely, lovely Cadillacs and Mustangs and all the big Jaguars and it was beautiful. Thought this is the life, you know. And goes in the pub. And I sat at the end of the bar, and there was a cockney behind the the counter. John, you went, all right, mate? What you want? And I said, um, I've got a pint of lager. Where you fucking scarce it, are you? I looked at him, went, yeah. He said, there's one in the kitchen here. He's a fucking pain in the ass. <laughs> and I went, really? <laughs> yeah. I said, I'll go and have a word with him. So the guy comes out in the kitchen. He comes out and he goes, all right, mate. And he's staring at me. And he went, I know you. He went, I know you. And you, Terry? He said, I slept in your mother's house. He said, I'm a friend of Alan's. And I looked at him and he went, Eddie Creed. And I went, all right, Eddie, how are you, mate? And he went, what are you doing here? So anyway, I said, Eddie, can I talk to you? So I told Eddie what had happened, because Eddie had been in Boston, and, you know, we so I could talk to somebody. I had no one to talk to. So eventually, he said, I'll, I can get you the job here, you know. These Norwegians had just bought the pub, come from Norway, and they, want, they paid like a quarter of a million for it. And he was saying to me, have you got any money? And I went, yeah, I'm fucking loaded. And he said, um, yeah. So I said, um, I'm, I'm staying now and that. And I said, you know, I'm on the run now. I've got to stay away. So we said, I can get you the job here. I said, we'll see what happens. So anyway, after about a week, I'd settled down and that. And I'd been in touch with my wife um, with a brother's house. He lived in down the East Lancashire Road. And I made the connection. She said she'd be over like in two months. So Eddie took me back to this apartment on Fort Street in Santa Monica, and it was beautiful. And the guy was in in Scotland, lovely apartment. I said, Eddie, let's get one of these. So anyway, I got an apartment. It was only like three hundred dollars a month at the time. Wow! Got the apartment. It was gorgeous, and it was about three blocks from the ocean, Ocean Avenue in Santa Monica. It was absolutely gorgeous. Eddie got me a job in the kitchen and we became, I, I become the chef and Eddie was the chef and we did like about 16 hours, eight hours each and we'd done the menu and everything. And anyway, about after two weeks, I'd met the owners and that they'd been back to Norway. They sold at home and they, they come to me and asked me, they said, hey, do you want to be, come as a silent partner in the pub? Um, $50,000. So I said, well, let me give it some thought. 
And Eddie said to me, do it, Terry. Do it. Become a silent partner. By this time, my brother, one of my brothers was coming over from Liverpool to see me already. He was coming from Liverpool. Tony. And um, he arrived. Got him and he come and stay with me in the apartment. I told him. He said, just do the investment. We'll, we'll keep it quiet. We won't tell anyone. We'll just think that, you know, that you're in the kitchen, you're the cook. So we'd done this deal. There was no lawyers involved. It was a handshake. And I would get 25% of the bar. And I was part owner in a pub. Next thing, me and Eddie were in charge of the pub. And, you know, you get some great characters come in. You know, some, some movie stars and that. So this guy's come in one day and he's at the end of the bar and he's got a, he's got a, a trilby on. And Eddie said to me, he said, that's Patrick McGowan. He said he was the governor in Alcatraz. He said, um, and he, he'd done this big movie. And so we were cooking and fishing ships and we'd serve him and we'd go, hello, sir, how are you? And Patrick, right? Yeah, yeah. And he used to come in every day. And I talked to him, but we wouldn't invade his privacy. So I started getting a little bit sicker, felt a bit sick, like weak, very weak. And I just knew there was something wrong with me. So I was going to the bathroom and I was bleeding internally. Oh, wow. Yeah. Started going to the bathroom and I had these pains in my stomach. So... I looked at some of the best hospitals in LA. I didn't have any insurance. I didn't have nothing. And you know what it's like there. So I went to this hospital and um, they advised me to go to get a private doctor. So there's a famous hospital called St. Joseph's and St. John's on 14th Street in Santa Monica. Very well renowned. So it goes in there, the hospital. And um, they said, oh, you've got to go across the street to see this doctor. His name is Dr. Messina, Alex Messina. So he goes across the street, goes in, and he looks at me, this young man. He said, hey, what's your problem? He said, I've got pains in my stomach. I said, I think I'm bleeding internally. So we said, okay, we're going to do these tests, the upper GI series and some tests. And then I'd formed um, psychological pains in the side of my head really severe chronic pain and I said I'm getting these like seizures oh we said okay then we're gonna send you to an, um, a neurosurgeon in Beverly Hills at Senior Sinai Medical Center Dr. Nelson so they'd done the physical on me they'd done some blood tests I was I was weak on blood I was I was anemic When we wake up in the morning, we get out of bed and we start our day with Koro Snacks. Koro is a healthy snacks brand focusing on bringing additive-free natural ingredients to their customers with fair prices in bulk packaging. They have everything from nut butters to free from baking ingredients to cooking essentials and, of course, the snacks. Oh, these Syrian pumpkin seeds from Koro are amazing. I have them on my cheese on toast every morning. You've been getting into them, Jen? Yes, and all the health benefits it brings. <laughs> Look at that. It's quite a lot. It's quite a lot. Lashings of them. Right. 
pop this in the oven then. So what makes Coro special in comparison to others? Coro cares about sustainability. Their bulk packs save on packaging material compared to small single packs. For a 5% discount on Coro's products, use the code TRUECRIME with no space in between true and crime. The link to Coro's online shop is in the description box on YouTube. Thanks for supporting our sponsor. And then he's done a scan on the upper GI. I had three massive bleeding ulcers. And he said to me, we're going to have to take your stomach away if, if you don't seal them. So they sealed it with a drug called Corafit. And then I said, well, what about the pains? He said, I'm going to put you on a course of Valium to calm you down. And he said to me, he was Italian, Dr. Messina. And he said to me, why are you having so many problems? What is wrong with you? And I told him. I'd actually opened up and told the doctor my situation. He said, well, if that's the situation, I'm going to have to give you a referral to a forensic psychiatrist. So I've gone to see Dr. Nelson, done two brain scans, one intravit on a drip, and then another brain scan. And they came back. They were fine. I was in the clear. I was happy. I actually thought that I had a tumour on the brain, but everything was good. So next thing, Dr. Messina gets me fit. He gives me iron shots every week in the buttocks. It's iron, blood, to get the blood level back to normal. He gets that back to normal, puts me on all kinds of medication, and I'm getting stronger, getting back to normal. It took toll all from when I was a kid, from when I was eight, up into all what I was engaged in. It was taking a heavy toll on my life. So we'll go to see the doctor in Beverly Hills. He was a forensic psychiatrist, Dr. Ralph Obler. And I sat down with him and he said to me, what is your problem? I said, I'm on the run. He went, what do you mean on the run? Oh, you mean on the lam? I went, yeah, I'm on the lam. He said, what for? So I told him everything. And he said, okay, I'm going to give you a prescription. I'm going to put you on Valium and an antidepressant. I didn't know what the antidepressant, I didn't even know what that meant. So it gets the Valium and the pain started going, subsiding, getting better. Had a lovely place. Wife comes over. I buy a, bought a new Cadillac. Seville and I bought a brand new Mustang. Got the bar. Everything's going fine. I'm getting a lovely wage in. Wife comes over. Everything's fine. Doing great. So on Second Street, you had Gold's Gym. Walked down there, so thought to start. I'll start training now again. Everything was going fine. So they just opened a new boxing gym. It was um, Muhammad Ali that opened the gym. And it was beautiful. So I walked in one day. I just walked in, I seen the ring. And um, these two black guys sitting there. And I looked at them. And it was Muhammad Ali. And I walked in and went, hello, how are you? And it was his best friend, Jimmy Ellis. Jimmy was the, the WBA champion in 1972. And he was running the gym. And him and Muhammad Ali had fought each other. And they were best friends in um, Louisville in Kentucky. They were the best friends. So I said, can I come in the gym? And he went, yeah, sure. And um, I, took, I, I took private lessons off Jimmy Ellis. 
I, had, I was having private lessons with him. Yeah, boxing. And he said to me, why don't you fight? I went, nah. I said, and I was telling him all about Liverpool and that, you know, all the great fighters, John Conti. We had some great fighters telling about Ronnie in New York. And that it was great. So anyway, we, we settled down. My wife comes over. She gets a job with a, um, with a real estate company. And I give her the Mustang. Everything was fine. So one night, Eddie's in the bar. And in the bar. You get some nutters coming in, you know, walking up down Santa Monica Boulevard. We used to just chase them, you know, the homeless. And, you know, we just helped them out and say, you know, are you okay, mate? You know, we never really, but we just didn't want them around the bar. But we'd help them in a certain way, give them some water, give them like some French fries or something like that. We never, we never abusive to them. We always helped them. So this night it was, we, we decided we'd build the bar up and have a disco. So we got this disco come in and we advertised it and the bar was chocky. So I was always worried that we were going to get robbed at gunpoint. Because it was known then. Where I'd lived, he'd gone into a liquor store and he'd shot a Vietnamese woman for nothing. But when you've got a bar like this taking a lot of money, you know, it was like unbelievable. So this night, about eight o'clock, six, six Welsh guys walked in. And um, one of them said, he was, he was like a weightlifter. And he said, oh, there's a fucking scouse bastard in the kitchen. And I heard him and he was referring to Eddie. And I looked at him and I thought, there's six of them. So I went round the kitchen. I used to, I used to carry, um, I had two hammers and a hatchet in case of any trouble. So I said to Eddie, come here a minute. I said, see this crowd here? And he went, what? I said, they're going to start. I said, see there, Eddie, two hammers. If they start, just get hold of one of the hammers. I said, well, I'm going to do it a lot of them. Eddie looked at me and went, okay. He was a bit nervous. I said, see that big fella there? I'm going to take him down in two seconds. Eddie went, ah, oh, yeah. I went, yeah, I'm going to do him. And then I'm going to do the rest of them. So next thing comes out. They, they quietened down. Now, my shift had finished and my wife was at home and I didn't drink. So I said, Eddie, nobody starts again. So no the fat for the fish and chips. Just, <laughs> I got the fat for the fish and chips and I said to Eddie, just the kitchen closed at 10 o'clock at night. So they were starting getting bevied all night. So I said to Eddie, turn the fat up. I said, and see this pan here? I said, just get it. Stand in the kitchen and give it to them. And he went, all right. I'll fucking give it to them. So anyway, two o'clock in the morning, there's a knock on my door. It's Eddie banging on my door in Santa Monica on 4th Street. He went, Terry, open the door. And I let him in. And he's full of fat. He said, I've done what you told me to do. I fucking give it to the six of them. And the fat was boiling hot. But all the customers had got it as well. No. So anyway, all the coppers came in Santa Monica. And that. So Eddie stayed in mine. So this, 
this Welsh crowd had got a gun to kill Eddie. And so I went in at 10 o'clock and I opened the bar and the bar's full of fat all over the bar. It's fat everywhere. He'd got it and scooped it and he kept giving it to them. And I actually didn't think he'd do it. And he, he, he was doing them all in. And the, three of them had gone to hospital. They, they were burns. So next day I goes in the bar and we had the cleaner come in. And she f- slipped on the fat as she come in. She fell over. And I got it up and that we cleaned the fat up and it was all over the place. And we were going to get the bar up at 10 o'clock. So next thing, three of the Welsh guys walked in. And they went like that to me. You, you fucking scouser. And I went, listen, mate, calm down, will you? He went, where's that nutter? And I went, I don't know, mate. And he went, we're going to fucking kill him. So I said, listen, listen. You better, I said, sit down, have a drink with me. I thought, I better not let this escalate again. It's going to get really nasty. So next thing, he came in and I said to them, listen, let's become friends. You can come in here whenever you want. I'll pay for all your food. I'll buy you your drinks. We're just scousers and use a fucking Welsh. And forget about Eddie. I'll sort it out, okay? We want peace. So I sorted them. Next thing, the six of them became my friends. And they came in the bar every night. And I gave them beers and that, you know, Budweiser's, and they were all right. And then I introduced, I said, Eddie, come and say hello to them. Everything was peaceful. So it went on for a while. Now, upstairs, we had six apartments. A few weeks later, Scouser comes down. And he goes, um, where's Terry? And I went, all right, lads, where are you from? He said, Norris Green. I went, all right. He said, I've heard about you. I went, all right, do you want a drink and that? And he was a good kid. So that night, the owner came in and there was a bit of a, a banter in the bar that they were legal. They hadn't paid the rent upstairs. And the owner came to me and said, they haven't paid the rent. So next thing, I said, we'll leave it for now. Let them pay later. No, they're going to pay the rent and all. I said, no, leave it, Victor. Just leave it. So next thing, it was about, it got on to nine o'clock and Victor had a few drinks. And he starts going to me, you fucking scouse bastards. To me, it's your fucking fault and all this and that. And I said, hang on, mate, calm down. So anyway, I lost it. I actually lost it in the bar. So he was by a phone. And he was arguing with me, and I was actually arguing back. That Liverpool way of arguing back at him. So I just, I stood back, and I just threw a right hand, and I hit him, and I knocked him out. And I'd done him in. His wife had called an ambulance, took him to the hospital, and his nose was broke, and his jaw was broken. And I went... Oh my God. And I went home and I went, what have I done now? Next thing, I had to pack a bag. Ended up, the police had gone to see him in the hospital. They'd called the police. And next thing, 
oh God, I'm going to get nicked now, again, for, you know, grievous bloody arm. And, phew, Jesus Christ, what am I going to do? So I had to leave the apartment with my wife. Got a motel. And I'm stuck in a motel. Victor gets out to the hospital. And I sent Eddie down to the bar. And I said to him, if he, if he presses charges against me, we still had the investment in the bar. I came up with an idea that I was going to burn the bar down. I was going to torture And then I was going to move on. That was the only way that I could persuade his mind. So Eddie went to visit in the hospital and he said, has the police been? He went, yeah. And did you give Terry's name? He went, yeah. He said, well, Victor, you can't prosecute Terry. I'm telling you, Victor, you're dealing with the wrong person. The bar will be burned down. He's going to burn the whole bar down. So Victor agrees. Meets Victor in the bar a week later. I apologised. And he puts his arm around me and he says, OK, you've got to leave. I've got to give you your investment back. I said, OK. Got my investment back. And I left. I left. So my other brother, Alan, had come over. I moved back into my apartment. And... We'd gone to a place called the Tudor House. And I got a job as a baker. The manager took us as a baker, doing all the steak and kidney pies, the sausage rolls, and me and Alan got in. So we, Alan's, Alan became the head baker, and I was the assistant baker. But they brought a confessionary baker in. They brought a confessionary baker in, in the Tudor House. So we're there for a few months. I think it was 1980, late 80, the beginning of 81. So the baker was showing us all. He was a a great baker, but he was a little weasel. And I was suffering from my spine with my nervous system. And I went in the back to sit down. He went... Um, um, I want you in the fucking bakery. Don't you be sitting down in there. And I went to him, hey, mate, who are you talking to? I said, don't talk to me like that, I said. I said, I'll fucking bury you in a minute. And he shit himself. So him and Alan would work together. So one day, I leave the bakery. And I go up to, to see Victor to have some fish and chips. Next thing, the immigration raid the bakery and they get Alan and they get his wife. She's the cashier. So I come down after an hour and I see all these cars at the back of the bakery and I'm looking. So I just done one. I knew there was something wrong. So they got Alan put Alan in downtown detention in deportation. The bail was $6,000. So the owner of the shooter house had bailed Alan out and his wife, and they got out. So I thought to myself, what am I going to do here now? Elizabeth Taylor, the butler. 
<laughs> I'll have to do what she told me. So I drove to Beverly Hills and I walked around. I parked the car I had. I had a big um, red Cadillac. It was gorgeous. Like a big movie star, you know. And I just parked it on Beverly Drive and, that, and I walked up and down Beverly, Beverly Drive and I was looking everywhere for agencies. And um, I found one. It was called the Sandra Taylor Agency. And I walked in and I said, um, do you do any butlers on that? And she went, yeah, yeah, we do butlers. And, you know, would you like to register? I went, yeah, okay. I said, is, is there any more agencies here? She went, yeah. She went, there's one down the street called the International Agency. So I registered. And I went down to the International Agency and I walked in. And this woman was sitting there. She had glasses on and that. And it was all beautiful. And I looked. And it was all film stars on the wall. And I looked at them all. And I was looking at them all going, wow, this is beautiful. And um, she said, what's your name? I said, my name's Terry Mugan. I said, I'm a butler. I was the butler head butler on the Queen Elizabeth II. Oh, she said, here, fill the application in. She said, I can, I can place you tomorrow in a job. And I went, that's nice. So, fills the application in. And I had me Merchant Navy um, Seaman's card and my book and, the sh- and all where I'd been on the ships. And I'd done a few other trips on the ferries to Olyhead. And in the book, it had in the book, PRS, Penthouse Room Steward, and it was done in red, which meant it was very high standard. So I took that standard and I used it to my advantage. And I told her, I said, look, I'm, I'm one of the best butlers on the Queen Elizabeth II. So I'm sitting with her and she said, I've got the ideal job for you. And I said, okay. She said, I'd like you to come back tomorrow morning and I'm going to arrange an interview for you in the hills in um, Hollywood I went okay not thinking like who it is or (laughs) or ever anybody and she went "Um, do you do formal service I went yeah I can do white gloves I'll serve with white gloves and we do serve on the left take of the right and I'll do the silver service Oh, you can do all that? Oh, I said, yeah, that's that's what I'm trained in. So she said, well, I'll have you eat, uh, meet um, Mrs. Eastwood tomorrow. <laughs> so I looked at her and I went, um, Mrs. Eastwood? I said, who's she? She said, oh, she said, to me, that's um, Clint's wife. She'll be doing the interview. I said, okay. So this was the new life <laughs> that me, I was going to start. Went home, got all ready, put my suit on. Next morning, my nerves are killing me. Go to the agency, got the address, went to the hills in Hollywood, parks the car outside, gets my briefcase, all my references, goes into this big mansion, presses the intercom. Hello? Yes, Mr. Mugan. I'm here to see Mrs. Eastwood. Next thing, the, these big gates open, goes in. Oh, come in, this woman. It's Clint's wife, blonde hair, beautiful woman. And um, her name was Maggie, Maggie Eastwood. So I addressed her like appropriately, 
Mrs. Eastbrook sits down and uh, she said, how would you like to move to Carmel? So they'd never had an English butler. They were fascinated with, you know, an English butler. I changed my accent a little bit so that they could understand me a bit more. Did you sound more proper British? Well, actually, more Scouse, but toned the Scouse down, spoke slowly, and made sure that they could that they could understand me. And sometimes I'd lose it. And then in between, they used to say, I love your accent. It's lovely. And I'd go, oh, yeah, okay. You just sound like John Lennon. <laughs> of course, yes. Yeah, you sound like John Lennon or Paul McCartney. And I just looked and went, oh, that's nice. Okay. So the arrangement was for me, at the end of the interview, to move to Carmel. I got offered the job. So at the side of the house in Carmel, she told me where it was. It was on the 17-mile drive, and it was a big, beautiful brown wooden home that was built beautiful. They had deer in the garden. It was beautiful, very excluded. But they'd built an extension on it. So I asked her, I said, is it possible that um, my wife could move with me? Oh, she said, absolutely. And I said, maybe she could work with you. So anyway, flies to Monterey Airport in a jet. Um, next thing, gets to the airport. This big Mercedes pulls up. It's Maggie. She's got the two kids in the back, Alison and Kyle. And I went, hello, how are you? And it was Clint's two kids. So she gets us in the car. So she said, we're going for lunch. So Clint's had a restaurant called The Hog's Breath Inn in Carmel. And we go for lunch. And she said, this is uh, me and my husband's restaurant. And I'm sitting there with her. Oh, that's nice, isn't it? Beautiful. Next thing, gets goes to the house. And it, was, it was at the weekend where the letters settled in. So about five o'clock, goes in the kitchen. I had the keys and that and... I wanted to sit, take a look at the kitchen, get familiar with the house. Next thing, I just turned around and hears a voice. Hi, how are you doing? It's Clint. <laughs> and he went, I said, hello, Mr. Eastwood, how are you? I said, my name's Terry Mugan. Nice pleasure to meet you, sir. I said, I'm the butler. And he went, pleasure to meet you. My wife's told me all about you. I said, thank you, sir. Can I get you anything? Can I get you a drink? He went, yeah, I'll take a beer. He said, there's some in the fridge there. I'll sit out on the patio. I got him a beer and I walked out to the patio and I gave him the beer. And he was a quiet man. I just went in the kitchen. So we started on the Monday. And I made a curriculum for the home. It was just a regular house like, but it was overlooking the 17 mile drive. It was absolutely gorgeous. So that... I remember the first night, it was very, they didn't want a formal. Some periodically they would add formal and informal because of the kids. So the, uh, the whole objective was to win the kids over. And I taught Kyle how to hit the speed bag. Clint had a speedball in the house. And I thought I'd like to teach Clint how to do that. But I taught the son. And um, Alison, I taught her some cooking lessons, how to do 
um, scrambled eggs and toast and bacon. And um, I won the kids over. That was the main... If you win the kids over, you're laughing, aren't you? And um, I didn't have much interaction with Clint. So I stayed for about four or five months. And then all of a sudden, he was at home at the time. And he had this beautiful 6.9 Mercedes. And he come in one day. And he said, Terry, um, do you want to do the car? I said, yeah, I'll do it for you. And I used to wash his car and I'd wax it for him and everything, and he loved it. I, did, I didn't have much interaction with him. I was a little bit, um, probably, I'd say they used the word infuriated. I was actually infuriated of him. It's not until you get to know them. His wife was more, like, relaxed. And then all of a sudden, he left. He left the residence. He left the residence. And he'd gone. So I would take four days off and I'd fly back down to Santa Monica. And when I came back, there was another guy there. His name was Henry Weinberg. And he dated Elizabeth Taylor. And I found him to be very obnoxious. And he was very abrupt to me. Um, speaking to me um, um, inappropriately, you know, his behaviour. And I went, hmm. So anyway, I said to my wife, I said, I think I'll, uh, I'm going to move. We'll move back to Santa Monica. And I gave her two weeks' notice. And she was, like, upset. Because my wife had done some reception work for her. Because that's what my wife was. She was a receptionist in the bank. And um, we told him that we were leaving. And the kid was upset, Kyle. He was doing a movie at the time called Onky Tonk Man with Clint. And it was sad because the kids were really lovely. Alison went on to be a model in LA and um, Kyle never took the acting up. He became a musician later on in life. So eventually I left. And I got a call. On the landline, because Maggie had my phone number. And she went, Teddy, where are you? Are you work? And I went, no. And then in between, I'd gone down back down to Amadali's gym to see Jimmy. Started training with Jimmy Ellis again, getting more fit, stronger. Met a few fighters in there. One of the welterweight championship of the world was um, Carlos Palomino. And I stuck up a lovely friendship with him. Because I said to him, I was, I, I was at your fight in London. When you fought with Dave Boy Green in 1977, he went, really? I went, yeah, I was at that fight. I said, yeah. And he was, he was like, delighted. And um, I stuck this friendship up. So the call was from Maggie for me to go back to Carmel Valley. There was, his name was Merv Griffin. He was a, a multi-billionaire. He's owned a show called Jeopardy. He said, oh, um, I've told this guy all about you in our country club in Carmel Valley, and he's looking for a butler. He, he said, she said to me, would you consider it? Um, he'll meet you in, um, on his studios on Sunset and Vine. So I decided, ah, you know what, I'll just go anyway. So he got my number, and he called me, and I had an answering machine, and Merv called me, and I called him back. 
and I set an interview up with him. So I went up to Sunset and Vine and I goes in his office and I goes in the office and he welcomes me and had a lovely suit on, dressed as usual as the butler. And he said to me, well, do you want to fly back up to Carmel Valley in my private jet? I said, yeah, okay. And he explained to me the ranch that he had and it was set on the top of Carmel Valley, overlooking the valley. It was absolutely beautiful. So we arranged to meet at Van Nuys Airport. So when I got to the airport, I had my case with me and I was looking at the plane. It was a, a little six-seater. And there was a guy standing next to him. He was about 22. Very good looking. American. Dead tanned. Handsome. And Merv said to me, oh, this is my friend Tony. So I put two and two together. I thought, hang on a minute. This has got to be his boyfriend. This toy boy. Here is a word from today's sponsor, Aura. If you Google someone, you can find out all kinds of personal information about them. This information is accessible because of data brokers who profit by selling your information to robocallers, telemarketers, spammers. You can use my link, https dot dot forward slash forward slash aura dot com. Aura is A-U-R-A forward slash Sean Atwood, S-H-A-U-N-A-T-T Wood to try two weeks for free and see how many data brokers are sharing your info. Also linked in my description box on this YouTube version or scan the QR code on the screen. Aura also monitors your emails and passwords to see if they were involved in a data breach and exposed on the dark web and gives you the recommendations on what to do. Aura has almost every internet safety tool you'll ever need all inside one app. So we get on the plane, goes up, gets off in Carmel, lands in Carmel Valley. There's a car waiting for us. Had a chauffeur, goes up, goes to the ranch. He said, Teddy, this will be your house here. Big 5,000 square feet house overlooking the valley. Goes to the main house, decorated with all, all the interviews that he'd done. The Beatles, John Lennon. All the big stars, awesome wells. He did everyone in the world. So that night, he said, Terry, what would I have so, for dinner? So they wanted filet mignon, asparagus, and mashed... Oh, actually, I did um, English roast potatoes for them, and they'd never had that before. So he asked me to join them at the table, which I thought was nice but unusual at the time. It wasn't my job to sit with anybody at the table. I wasn't part of the family. I was the butler. So I joined them at the table. And then all of a sudden, I could see this atmosphere going a bit crazy, you know. And, you know, and Terry, you know, this. And um, me and Tony, you know, we've had this relationship for quite a while now. And, oh, yeah, oh, okay. You know, like Scouser, like I'm going, yeah, okay. That's nice, isn't it? So I didn't know what to do. <laughs> I know where this is going. So next thing, I was there for two weeks, but I wanted to leave the next day. <laughs> I wanted to leave. 
thought, well, I'm, I'm stuck here. So I left and he said, oh, Terry, you can come and sit on the sofa if you like and watch the TV with us. Oh, God. <laughs> <laughs> so I went like that. I went, no, thanks. I'll, I'll, I'll just go to my room and I'll watch the TV. So the next day, I was doing all the chores and I was cleaning up and everything, just as a regular penthouse butler. And I could see the bed that they'd been sleeping in the same bed. <laughs> and I was going, well, I'll, you know, I'll just mind my own business. I'll, I'll use diplomacy. I won't say nothing. And I'll just carry on. So a few nights later, they went out one night. And then the next night, um, I'd done um, a pan of scouse. You know, pan of scouse is like Irish stew, you know what it is, but it's scouse. Yeah. <laughs> and, and it was lovely. It was lamb and, instead of beef. And I set the table lovely. And um, Terry, would you like to join us? I said, no, I'm fine. Oh, no, we'd rather you join us. So I joined them again. I was going, oh, where's this going, you know? So anyway, where it went to was we sat on the so he, he, he said, I want you to sit here. Come and sit here. And I, I, I sat there with them, and I was, felt so uncomfortable. And he said, um, you never know, it could turn into a threesome. No. <laughs> and I went, oh, my God. Just like that. Just like that. And he said, I think Tony likes you. And I went like that under my breath. I'll fucking knock Tony's head off. <laughs> <laughs> and anyway, it went sour. So I persevered for two weeks and he was flying back to LA and he thought I was coming back. Got to Los Angeles and I went with him to his office. I said, you know, you put me in a, a very awkward position in my life. I said, I can't return. So, and that was it. And he paid me. So eventually, I'd left Merv Griffin. Where did we go back? I went to the international agency. And I thought, maybe I'd just stay around Beverly Hills this time. And I was close to Santa Monica because I had the apartment. Goes back to Dora. Automatically got a job for you. Job was for a couple called Mr. and Mrs. Feldstein. They owned a, a bank called the Mitsubishi Manufacturers Building on Wiltshire Boulevard. Absolutely multi-millionaires. And they, didn't, they bought a home. It was the former home of um, Jack Benny, the famous comedian. And it was on um, a, a street called Roxbury Drive. Roxbury Drive was full of all the stars. Bugsy Siegel, um, Lucille Ball, Colombo. Actually, Lucille Ball's house was next door to the Felsteins and Columbo's was on the other side. So I goes to get this interview and I met them. It was, it was silver service every night. They wanted silver, white gloves, very appropriately done. So I took the challenge and the money was good. I took the challenge. Actually, she was English, but she never told me she was English. I thought that was very unusual with her. They had three children that went to the, uh, the Beverly Hills High School. My job was to chauffeur them. And then during the day, I'd do all the chores and I, and I put a cu curriculum for the house. Anyway, I stayed a few months and I found that the, the children was, couldn't ruin a job. 
they would come home and spit on the, the mirrors and I had to clean it. And I thought, you know, oh, you know, this is absolutely ridiculous. It really put a bad taste in my mouth. And some people, it was a more of an experience that, you know, you can't please them all the time. You just couldn't please them. And very super rich. Um, one of the best things, I just took the Rolls Royce and I'd go out for the ride and said I was going to the car wash. That was the best part of the job, <laughs> of like of most of the jobs. And so I stayed a few months and that, and I wasn't happy there. I was never happy. And then on my weekends, they'd always want me to work on the weekends. We want you to do this. We want you to do that. Um, this woman particularly, I remember now, comes back to me. She was so paranoid about cleaning that she would get a mirror and put it underneath the, the rim of the toilet to see if it was clean. And I caught her doing it. And she'd come back to me and she'd make notes. You have not cleaned underneath the rim of the toilet. And she shocked the life out of me. And when I was doing my job, she would go around me. And she was that paranoid that she kept checking it and checking it and checking it and checking it. And I went, you know, she's supposed to be English. But she turned into an American. And I went, this is ridiculous. And that was one of the things that really got to me. And actually then I wasn't feeling that good as well about the whole situation. But I couldn't get out of it because it was good money. And at night, I always remember once they had this party in the back garden. And um, I was doing the design of the tables and the, the tablecloths, pink with white lace um, napkins. And I was designing it all beautiful. And this woman, I just heard this, hello, hello. And I looked to me right. And I knew Lucille Ball lived next door. And she goes, hi, how are you? Who are you? I went, oh, hello, how are you? Um, I said, I'm the butler. Really? She said, um, could you do me a favour? I said, what is it? She went, come over here. She went, um, my maid's off today. She said, could you take my garbage cans out? I said, yeah, I'll be over in a minute. So it goes out, walks around the house, goes at the back of Lucille's. Now, the garbage cans can't, they can't be put out in the street in Beverly Hills. It's against the law. <clears throat> they have to be put out in the alleyway at the back of the house. So she had them in the house, in, in the garden. And, you know, they're these massive, big... You ever seen the garbage cans in America? Yes, huge. They're like uh, enough for like twenty families. You could put twenty families garbage in them, but they've got six of them. This, it's it's crazy. Um, most of the time they're empty, but they've got so many. So it goes over, gets the garbage cans out, and I thought, oh, oh, I've got to say something to Lucy. Got to say something nice to her, you know, build some rapport. So I turned around to her and I said, um, "I said you look like my mother." <laughs> I said, my mother looked like you. My my mother had red hair. And she went, really? I went, yeah, I said, you look like her. And I um, started laughing and joking with her. And then I said, um, anyway, you're welcome. And um, she, I said, is your maid here next week? I said, if, I said, if I'm still here, <clears throat> I said, you've got to make me a cup of tea. Anyway, I was 
dying to look forward to next week. But the job was getting me down a little bit and I wasn't feeling that good. I was still taking the shots of iron and I was still on the antidepressants and I was also on the Valium. And I was going into a, a decline. Um, I was going into what you call a mental breakdown. The mental breakdown was due to um, the trauma of um, PTSD. It was multiplying in my brain of being actually on the run. I'd go and see Dr. Obler, and they wanted to know where I was going on my break in the afternoon. If you work 12 hours in Beverly Hills, the law, the California law is that you're, you're allowed three hours break. And I'd have to go to the doctor's. And I'd go and see Dr. Obler and say, I don't feel well. Well, we can give you a stronger medication. No, I said, I've got to function in the job. I said, I can't function. It was affecting me. You know, it was just affecting me. And he said to me, um, well, um, it's possible then if this is affecting you that we might have to take you into hospital. And I looked at him and went, what, what do you mean? He said, well, we'd have to put you on a drug called Thorazine. And I went, what's that? Oh, he said, it's for people who are having breakdowns. But you'd, you'd probably have to be admitted into the hospital. And at the time, I didn't show that I was bad, but I was bad. I was having nightmares with the police. You know, the police um, putting the gun in my head. And that's all I... And it was just... It was horrible. And then it was just my life. It was just all come back to me. You know, it was just building up and building up. So I stayed another week or two. And I actually did say to Lucille Ball on the day... I remember it was a Tuesday... And um, I said to her, before she leaned over, I knew the maid wasn't there because I didn't see the car. And um, I thought, she's going to ask me to take them garbage cans out. I want a cup of tea with her. I just don't know why. I just She was a lovely woman. And um, I shouted. She, she popped her head up. I, was, I went out at the same time in the garden. And um, she, she popped over and I went, have you got that cup of tea? And she went, yeah, come over. Anyway, I went home and she made me a cup of tea. It was one of the highlights of living with the Roxbury ghosts. That's what they're called in Beverly Hills. All the Roxbury ghosts are all the film stars. Male or female, that's what they call them. I was sitting with a Roxbury ghost and it was Lucy. And what did you guys talk about? We talked about England and Ireland. She said she was Irish. She said she was Irish and she said, what are they like next door? And I felt like saying that a gang of twats. <laughs> That's what they are. They're not in the real world. I said, I'm going to be leaving. I told her. <laughs> anyway, I started getting a little bit fit. I gave me notice in. And I left the Felsteins. But it was an experience. I started now to get the experience. I went back home to my wife. And um, she was working for the receptionist, for the big um, real estate company. I went home. I was glad to be back home. So I started going back in the gym. Went down. I was going down to see my Amadali, see if he's in there with, with um, Jimmy Ellis. Jimmy's always there because he ran the gym. And then she's like, and uh, this big fella walks in. It's Joe Bugner. Joe, Joe Bugner, the heavyweight. He fought my Amadali a few times. He fought Henry Cooper. And it's all right, mate, how are you? Starts talking to him. And, you know, anyway, 
I'd worked out in the gym and Joe was working out with um, Jimmy Ellis and he said, what are you doing? I said, I'm, he said, I'm going to go for a walk. So I, I, I went for a walk with him down the pier. We went for a walk on Santa Monica and we walked down on the pier. And we had to walk around the pier and we came back up and that with Joe Bugner. Lovely, lovely man. Yeah, lovely guy. So I, I had a break for about a, a month and then the agency kept calling me because I was what you call placeable because I was English and I was a butler. And she would not leave me alone because, you know, they get a good, they actually get a good commission. So she told me to come in. So I got a bit strong and I went in, I was feeling okay. And she said, Terry, I've got the most marvellous job for you. I said, you always say that. Mm-hmm. You've always, I said, I hope this one is good. I said, I'll take it. She said, well, it's a guy, um, I'm going to tell you who he is. His name is Frederick Wiseman. He's one of the biggest art collectors in the world. And he's bought this beautiful Spanish mansion. Now, you've got Beverly Hills. And then above that, there's Holmby Hills. Holmby Hills. And she told me you lived on there. And he's got this mansion. He said, it's between you and a French chef. You'll get the job. Well, at the time, I didn't feel like I needed competition. You know, my competition was myself. That was my competition. That's what I'd learned. I wasn't interested in anybody else because I knew what I could do. And I go to this house and it's absolutely beautiful. Absolutely set in Holmby Hills. And I'd, I'd been past it and I drove past and I'd asked someone, who lives on the street? And I found out that it was a place called Carrollwood Drive. And it was George Addison lived next door to him. On the other side was Barbara Streisand. Down the street was Gregory Peck. Rod Stewart. Frank Sinatra. At the bottom was Elvis. And facing Elvis was Michael Jackson. (laughs) Wow. What a neighbourhood. Definitely. What a bleeding neighbourhood. Anyway, I went to the home. I was dressed immaculate. I put my best suit on. I thought, I've got to impress this guy. Now, what I liked about the job, it was one, it was one man. One man. No children. No dogs. And I, this is what I was learning now. I didn't want the responsibility of children or animals because I wanted to do my job. Next thing, he interviews me. Oh, he said, you'd be pay-. Little guy was very powerful. And actually, he owned um, Toyota. He actually owned Toyota. He Well, Toyota used to be called to- Toyota. And they switched the A, called it Toyota. Yet they switched it. In, in Japan, it was Toyota. And then they called it Toyota. And he bought the franchises from the Japanese. Wow. And he became the biggest distributor in America. Frederick Wiseman. And when he was young, he was the president of Hunt's Foods. And he married Marsha Wiseman, who was the sister of Norton and Simon, the big museums 
the big art collectors in um, Pasadena. So anyway, as the interview, he said, oh, I love you. You know, the Americans, they all love you. Next thing, I didn't hear nothing for a week. Phones he oh, he hasn't, he hasn't made his decision. He's between you and a, a French chef. I said, well, is the French chef a butler? He said, no. So the two girls that were his secretaries worked downstairs and I'd met them and he went to them and he said to the both of them, who would you have as the butler? And he said, there's only one butler. <laughs> He's not French. <laughs> He's not French. It's, it's, it's the Englishman. So I was hired as his butler. Wow. Goes into this home. Beautiful. It's got the most beautiful artwork you've ever seen in your life. Henry Moore, Liechtenstein, um, Giacometti, David Ochney, Andy Warhol, all of them. Ed Rouget, all the greatest artists in the world. And I didn't understand it. Didn't understand the artwork. But the position that I was in, that I'd been put in, was absolutely beautiful. Anyway, I became the butler for Mr. Wiseman and moved in. Mr. Wiseman, his schedule, he would get up at six o'clock every morning, sitting in a little cove at a round table, eating raisin bran. And he'd have a three-piece suit on with a, a tie that was very ostentatious. And he, he looked absolutely beautiful. He had little glasses on and all his hair was weaved. He had all a hair transplant. <laughs> and all he ate every morning, all he ate every morning was the, the raisin bran. Oh, wow. <laughs> and then I was left to have the home to myself. So I approached him and I said to him, my quarters was beautiful. My bedroom had looked over Barbara Streisand's estate. I could see the house. I could see, but I never, ever looked, ever. I, I just knew it was there. So I asked Mr. Wiseman, I said, you know, is it possible that my wife could move in? He said, oh, yeah, absolutely. So I brought my wife over, and she moved in the house with me, and she helped with all the chores, and she helped with all the cooking. And that. the home, I can't explain the home. It's on um, Frederick Wiseman Art Museum. And um, this experience that I had was absolutely out of this world. And for instance, one morning I got up and he was in the kitchen and we had um, a blue corniche. And the corniche was like beautiful. And then we had some Toyotas. And... He said to me, Terry, I want to go for lunch today. I said, okay. You want the Cornish? And he went, okay, we'll take the Cornish. I said, where are we going? He said, we're going to Trader Vicks in Beverly Hills for lunch. I'd take him. I'd wait outside. Sometimes he would ask me to join him. I'd prefer not to. And 
I take him for lunch and he'd have a business meeting and then I take him back home in, in the Rolls Royce. One of the best things was was the Rolls Royce and he had a, a PO box on Sunset Boulevard for his mail. So I settled down in the job and it was easy, found it easy. And plus, he'd go back to Maryland for three weeks. So I had the house to myself. I've got the home to myself. Would you say that was your favourite gig? Yeah, it was the best ever in my life. So when he was away, the butler would play. (laughs) And the butler did play. And I I took advantage of it. But in a nice way. Not in a a destructive way. It was in a nice way. And what I did was, I took the Rolls Royce one morning and I put the top down. And I went to get the mail. Now, when you go through Beverly Hills, you've got all these streets, but there's one main street called Lexington. And I'm going through, it's 8.30 in the morning, the sun's shining, it's April, and it's beautiful. Picks the mail up. On the way back, have the mail. And I wore a uniform when he was in town, and then sometimes I'd take me tie off. I wore a black suit with a white shirt and a black tie. Usually, like, it was very highly graded. So this morning, I took the tie off. And I was driving back from Lexington. I'm driving down Lexington. I was feeling the sun and feeling um, the freedom and the position I was in in life. On this side of my brain, it was beautiful. But on the other side of the brain, it was dark. I was on the run. It, it, It stalked me. So I'm driving and I'm watching the sun and the sun's coming through the, the trees. And I'm driving this big, the most gorgeous car you've ever seen in your life. And I've got a pair of black sunglasses on. And I stopped at a light on Lexington. And I was like that, just with the sun. And I was like that. And I turned to the left. And I looked to the left. And it's Michael Caine. He's in the same car, but it was yellow. And I went, good morning, Michael. And he looked at me and I went, not bad for the Scouser, is he? (laughs) 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 He went, (laughs) (laughs) do you know what he said to me? Go on. You know what he said to me? Did you just steal that? (laughs) 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 He said to me, did you just steal that? (laughs) I said, I said, I wish I would have. And I just, I just took off. I took off. That made me day. That was, it was absolutely brilliant. So I'd gone home and I just pressed these gates and these two big, oh, it was that big Spanish beautiful one. I pressed the gates. George Addison was living next door and they put the home ups of sale for George Addison and he was leaving. I think he was going to Maui, to Hana. He'd bought a place in Hana in Maui and I'd never seen George and I think I would have got to, to see him. So the good thing is that we had um, we had like three acres, four acres on the land in the Hornby Hills. And it, it, it went down and we had a, a tennis court. So every morning I'd get up and I'd, I'd, I started doing strength training from what I'd remember from, from Borstal. And I got back into it, lifting weights, running in the morning, shadow boxing, doing all the things, getting strong to overcome the mental weakness. And I started building myself up. 
And he was away for quite a while. And I had the home to myself. So, when he was home, there was one particular morning. He was in the bedroom and he hadn't come down. And I'd gone up to the room to make sure he was okay. And I knocked on the door and um, he was in the back of the the back of the bedroom and he had an hammer and he and he, he was banging holes in the wall. He used to move the artwork around like constantly, constantly and constantly move the artwork. And eventually I knocked on, hello, Mr. Wiseman, are you okay? I was concerned about his health. You know, we could have, anything could have happened to him. Oh no, Terry, I'm just in here, I'm hanging up. I said, I've got your raisin bran downstairs. Oh, I'll be down in a minute. So he comes down the stairs and he's got this, actually it was the same colour as that little dog there. <laughs> same colour as what you, yeah, purple. It's the same colour as that. Isn't that beautiful? It's great, isn't it? Yeah. Sit between us. Yeah. <laughs> so it was like that. So he comes down the stairs and but it had black spots on it. And it was like, you know, like a jockey. You know when a jockey rides. So he comes down, he said, Teddy, out of a look. And I just looked at him. And I said, you look like a jockey. <laughs> yeah, I, said, uh, I said, you look like a jockey. And he, he said, oh, God damn it. And he ran back up and he took it off. And he put his shirt and tie on and he came back down. And he just sat there. He said, anyway, I threw that in the garbage. And I, he put it in the garbage. So, you know, these experiences I'd had with him and um, I got friendly with him. And one day he, he called me into his office and he said to me, Terry, um, I've ordered a Bentley from the UK and it's going to be the first Bentley that they've ever made. It was a Bentley Mulsanne and it's going to be arriving at the home. He said, but I won't be here. I'll be in um, DC, Washington. I said, okay. I couldn't wait for this Bentley to come. So anyway, gets a call at the house. It's on its way. It come from Long Beach in a container from England. This beautiful British racing green Bentley leather inside. I couldn't wait for it. But anyway, they brought it in a, a big truck and they rolled it out, got it out. I inspected it and, and they parked it in the driveway and I just looked at it and I went, wow, what a car that is. Couldn't wait to take my uniform off. Went in the house, said to my wife, get ready, take your uniform off. Now it came with a, a cassette, Frank Sinatra. Come with this cassette and the fella showed me the cassette and it was my way. So, I thought, I'm, I've got to do this. They left, they inspected the car, everything was great. Next thing, I said, come on, to my wife, gets in it. No one had had this car. No one, Beverly Hills. It was custom made, it was a quarter of a million, 250,000 quid. 
in them days in 83. Next thing, he gets in it, puts the tape in, and I was just driving like that. It was like a big tank. <laughs> so it gets to Rodeo Drive, gets to Rodeo, and I put the music up. My wife just looked at me, and she went, I sent it up. Drove down Rodeo, and all you could hear is Frank Sinatra, my way, I did it my way. I drive down there, I stopped the whole of Rodeo Drive. I went down to Wilshire. Everyone was just looking at this car in the street. <laughs> went to the Beverly Wilshire. Turned around, came back. Came back up. And I just stopped the whole of Rodeo. And I just started laughing. <laughs> and my wife was going, wow. If that would have been filmed, it was like out of a movie. It was beautiful. Took the car home. It was lovely. Anyway, you come home, and it was all to do with art. Um, he told me David Ockney was coming to the house. I'd met David Ockney. Um, I picked him up from his studios, actually, in Hollywood, and I drove him over, and he, he was buying art from David Ockney. Um, I, I'd met Andy Warhol. Andy Warhol had done all, you know, the Marilyn Monroe collection. He'd got the man like five, five a piece, five million a piece then. Biggest, like it's worth 170 million today. Yeah. 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 So anyway, we started to get to really know me and that, and we formed a a nice bond together. You know, it was nice because you're probably looking at me, young kid. And, um, so one day, I told him, I said, like, you know, you haven't been in the Bentley yet. So, can I drive you? Let's go. I'll, I'll take the Bentley. I said, they've got a nice CD in it. And he said, oh, that would be nice. So anyway, gets in the Bentley, gets him in, closes the door, and comes down Carrollwood Drive, goes past Elvis's house, Michael Jackson's, and we're going down to Rodeo Drive. And we're going to the, the Polo Lounge at the, at the Beverly Hills Hotel. So I put the tape on, and he, he took a wobbler. He went, get that fucking goddamn tape out of my fucking car. And I went, oh my God, what's wrong? He grabs the tape, and he fucking throws it in the street. <laughs> he went, that fucking son of a bitch. And I went, what son of a bitch? And he threw it in the street. And he went to me, Terry, I'm so sorry. So we pulled up at the red carpet at the polo lounge. I'd been there many a time. And he got out and he said to me, come in with me. And I looked at him. I said, is everything okay? He went, it's okay, yeah. Come in with me. So there's a cafe there. Polo Lounge and there's a restaurant so we never went in the restaurant we went into the the Polo Lounge and he said um, in 1969 I was in here and the Rat Pack was here he said and I had a fight with Frank Sinatra he said he made some words against me against the Jews because Wiseman was a Russian Jew 
and he'd made these. They were being loud, the Rat Pack. It was, um, I think it was Dean Martin's birthday. And they were making all this noise. So Wiseman said, excuse me, can you keep the noise down? I'm having my lunch. And Sonata said to him, who the fuck are you, you little Jew? And next thing, Wiseman gets up and he whacks Sinatra, breaks his nose and gives him two black eyes. And I've done a chapter in the book. It's called All Black Eyes. That's the chapter that I've done in, in the book. Wow. So Wiseman was telling me the story. Next thing, the story that he tells me, Sonata's bodyguard had intervened and hit Wiseman and blackjacked him. Now, for the audience, blackjack means... Blackjack, it could be with a kosh, where a blackjack is over the, the head. Or it could be, it was a phone. The bodyguard picked the phone up and hit Wiseman. Wiseman collapses. All of a sudden, an hour later, he's in Sina Sinai Medical Center with a tumor on the brain. The rat pack gets up. They all leave. Eventually, the police call Frank Sinatra in. And he said, no, he punched me, he broke my nose and he gave me two black eyes. So they blame Wiseman. There was no charges against Wiseman. Or there was no charges against Sinatra. And it was left. And it was a very famous thing that had happened in the polo lounge. And he'd explained that to me. And that was the reason why he grabbed the tape out the Bentley. <laughs> Absolutely unbelievable story that he had told me and it was famous mm. and so we got along together and we'd been moving some of the artwork so one day they were knocking a wall down in the house they were putting Henry Moore he loved Henry Moore he was the great British artist and he was a sculpture and he said Terry I'm going to get this Henry Moore I'm going to put it here I think he told me it was two million dollars it's still there today so they knocked the wall down and we had this construction site come in. So at the end of the day, I had to check the house. I had to secure it to make sure that all the doors were locked, etc. Make sure the gates and, and I was good to the construction men. I'd bake them tea, give them a sandwich. So this day, it was about five o'clock. My wife was there. She was doing some chores, doing something for them or with the secretaries. They were downstairs. So I was, I was upstairs and I was checking the rooms in the house. And I come across this door and I was just checking it. And I just checked it and it was open and it should have been locked. I've never seen it open. And I opened it and there's a safe about... Oh, I'd say about five foot by three foot. Like a bank safe. So I put my hand on the door and I opened it and I looked inside, look around and then I took to the left and there was two big bags like this and I picked them up and I unzipped one of them and it was full of $10,000 bill. Um, 
increments of 10,000. I pull one out, 10,000, 10,000, 10,000, 10,000. And I went, wow. Pick the other one up. Piaget watching it. Diamonds. Um, gold bracelets. And two Piaget watches there. Well, Piaget probably worth 25,000 each at the time. Today would be 100,000. What was my first reaction? Well, I'm having that. I'm having yeah. it. I'm having it. I'm on my way back to England. I'm going to buy myself said. a lovely house. Yeah, what stopped you? Well, this is the thing what stopped me. I put myself in the position of that. I'd sat at the table when he was away and I'd ate the same breakfast, which was raisin bran. And I read the Wall Street Journal and I read the US Today, what he had read. And it dawned on me I was developing and I was getting more educated. And I thought, what a beautiful life this is. Here I am, the sun shining in Holmby Hills and Beverly Hills. I'm driving two Rolls Royces. I'm making $50,000 a year. Wow. A man's giving me a job. Why would I steal his money? What? Why would I do that? So I left it. And I played on it for 48 hours. Shall I go up? Shall I take some of it? Shall I take a few diamonds? Shall I take a gold necklace? And I told my wife, and my wife was so honest. My wife was, you know, it was the opposite. She'd never had nobody like me. And I'd never had no one like her that was so honest. It was the opposite directions we were in. But we were married. And we worked together, we got along together. And she said to me, Terry, if you take that, you're going to be on the run again. And then it set in. My life had changed. Wise woman. Yeah. But it wasn't, it was also, she helped me change it. And then redemption set in. That was my life. That redemption had set in. I took the money and I took it down to the secretary and the jewellery. I said, Mr. Wiseman left the safe open. And they counted it was about 155,000 and probably 200,000 worth of jewellery. And he came back and he said to me, Oh, Teddy, thanks, Sam. I had some petty cash in the safe. I want to thank you for him. I made a mistake. I didn't lock the... F I said, no, it's okay. Thank you, sir. Petty cash? Yeah, petty cash. <laughs> yeah, 155,000. Petty cash. Pocket change. Because he was a billionaire. He was a billionaire. So the artwork, we'd carry on, we'd move some... Um, Francis Bacon, he got too, too beautiful. Got this beautiful orange masterpiece of Frank, Francis Bacon. And it was gold places, and he came in, and he was a perfectionist, and it was like we must have wear the fortune, you know, absolutely fortune. And he said, "This is Francis Bacon," and he would teach me the art, and I was really getting into it with him, and I loved it. 
And I said, are you getting any more pieces? Oh, he said, Teddy, I'm getting something that's going to come that nobody's got. And I was just like young and naive. But this man was, he'd come out of the coma. He'd come out of it. The tumour, he'd recovered from what they'd done to him, Sinatra. But his passion and his love was art. That was his passion. But he told me he had this piece coming. And he told me twice, but it was delayed. So we're upstairs one morning. And when he'd wake up in the morning, he had a blue mural on the wall, just blue with with um, white clouds on it. So he, he told me that when he woke up, that when he looked at the blue, he was looking at the sky and it made him happy. This was one of the things that he told me made him happy as opposed to being in, seeing a sign in medical centre with a tumour on the brain. And I thought that was very interesting when he said that. Because later on in my life, when I'd go to Hawaii, that's what I would look at. The sun and the blue skies in Hawaii and all the beautiful white clouds. You, you can't beat it. Anyway, I waited a few more weeks. And this masterpiece was coming. Comes in as his breakfast, as usual that morning. And he goes, Terry, I'm so excited. It's coming today. It's coming. And I'm looking, going, okay. He's all excited and I'm uneducated. Artwork. It's coming. Terry, when it comes, let me know, okay. It's coming here today. So two o'clock comes. The doorbell goes. Hello, can I help you? Yes, got it. I'm a piece from Mr. Wiseman. Let's them in. This wagon comes in. These two guys get out, get the masterpiece. They bring it into the living room. And I'm just looking at it. I said, I've got to go and get Mr. Wiseman. He's told me that this is coming. Goes down, gets him. He runs. I've never seen him so excited about his artwork. He unfolded it. And he looked at it. And I said, what is it? He said, this is the mother and child, Picasso. The only one in the world. Oh. <laughs> of one of the only one in the world. And it must have been a fortune. You didn't find out how much it set him back? I know what it's worth today. Go on. Um, today's value? Mm. It's priceless. So, it's absolutely priceless. Then I'd say 100 million, which is very, you know, mm. it's up there. Yes. It's up there. <laughs> but money didn't, it didn't bother him. Of course. What was given him his life was the art. Mm. That was given him his life. So anyway, he said, Teddy, what do you think? I said, oh, it's absolutely beautiful, the mother and child, Picasso. So he said to me, where do you think we should put it, Teddy? He said, I think we should put it over the mantelpiece. I said, it's going to guide the house. And I said, your house will be blessed. He said, okay. I went to the garage, got the ladder, got a big hammer and some wire. And it was all ready with the ukes. 
I measured you. Got a measure on it and, and I put it there for him. It's still there today. <laughs> that was in 1983. I'm just fascinated how you're using like a nail and a hammer in this day and yeah. age you'd use a drill to yeah. hang a picture. No, I the used risk a nail. of it yeah. sliding and falling and breaking. But, yeah. you know, prices, probably later on. Artwork, just later on. Yeah, that's what we did. It was always with a nail and, <laughs> nail and hammers. No. All, the, all the artwork that we moved was with the nail and the hammer. <laughs> oh, God. <laughs> That's all I knew was the hammer. The hammer hammer from the robberies. They didn't fall off. No, no, no. no, 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 no. Solid as a rock. Yeah. Yeah. And um, so this life I'd had with this man that was a billionaire was absolutely incredible. And I was learning so much. And one other occasion, he come out, he'd had his breakfast again, same to dance with him. And he got excited he said, Terry, I'm so excited today. He was always excited. And he said to me, I don't know which car to take. I don't know whether to take the, the Bentley or the the Corniche. And he was doing this. I don't know what to do. And I said, I can't make a decision. Because he, he was like that. So I said, do you want me to make the decision for you? And he went, go on. I'll do it. I said, let's take the Bentley. It's very rare that you've rode in it. You need to, you need to take it. I said, where are we going anyway? He said, we're going to Van Nuys Airport. Get him in the car. Close the car. Like a gentleman. Get him in the car. He said, I'm so excited, Teddy. I'm buying a jet. And I looked at him. I went, oh, that's nice. I always used to just say, that's nice. I couldn't ever question him, you know. And he went like that. He went, um, yeah, I'm buying a G4. I didn't know what a G4 was. So he gets to Van Nuys Airport, this plane sitting on the, the airport, and he goes like that. There's the plane, Teddy. This big, massive jet, G4. So I stayed by the car. And he looked at me and went, come on, get on the plane. So he gets on the plane with him. The pilots are there, private pilots and all that. We're going for a spin around LA in the G4. Gets on the plane. G4 takes off. Wow. What, like, like, it was like the Concorde. Mm. Takes off. It's like that. The pilots are made up. Just me and him sitting there. <laughs> he said, what do you think, Terry? Brilliant, isn't it? Absolutely brilliant. So he comes back, gets the pilots, and invites the pilots to stay at the house for the night. So what he's going to do, he's going to lease it, and then he's going to buy it. That's what he told me. So he asked me to take the pilots out. So I got the pilots in the car, and um, I took them in the Corniche. My favourite place was to go was Santa Monica Pier in Santa Monica, on the pier, where they'd done a lot of movies. They'd done The Sting, Robert Redford. And I used to love running when I lived in Santa Monica. Santa Monica to Malibu. And I'd always run up the pier. And it was beautiful. So I took them down there, gave them a few Guinness. And they're saying to me, Teddy, do you think he's going to buy the plane? I said, I don't know. I don't know. Takes them back to the house. 
got their head down the next day. They had done the deal and he bought the G4. He bought the G4. He, buy, he buys the G4 and there's, he gets an artist. His name's Ed Rouget. Ed Rouget. And he paints the, the plain blue and, it, and he puts white stars on it. And he said to me, Teddy, this was his, his uh, imagination of art. Ed Rouget is a very, um, very big artist in the world. And he said to me, Teddy, the reason why I did this is it will, it will blend in the night when we go to New York because he owned a brownstone in New York. I used to go to New York with him and he had a brownstone in Manhattan and I used to take care of it for him. And we'd land at a private airport just outside JFK and we'd have a limousine and take us into Manhattan and everything. And so the bl- the plane would be blending in the night, blue with white stars on it. It was unbelievable. Anyway, I'd had so much experience with him and I'd, Bert Reynolds had moved in next door. Bert Reynolds. And... Um, um, he was with Lonnie Anderson, Lonnie Anderson at the time. And I'd seen him a few times. I'd said hello to him and that was it, you know. And um, so I was with Wiseman quite a while. And then had so many experiences with this man. And he said he was moving back to Manhattan. He was going to move back to New York or Maryland. And he said, um, basically, the job was coming to an end. Aww. It was coming to an end. But one before, I, before I've got to tell you this one. He'd come up to me in the kitchen one day, and he said, the secret service has come and said to the house. And I looked at him, and I went, the secret service? He went, yeah, they're going to be in two black limousines. He said, there's someone going to play tennis on the courts. I went, okay. So about half an hour later, the doorbell outside is going. I can see them on the camera in, in the kitchen. Hello. Um, yes, um, we've come here to play tennis. So I opened the gates, these two limousines pull in. Secret service. This girl gets out. She's with her dad. I looks over. It's Ronald Reagan, <laughs> the president. Yeah. His daughter Maureen had come to play tennis on the courts at Wiseman's. I just looked and I went, hello, good morning. And he, I'm talking to the president, Ronald Reagan. <laughs> And he's, well, yeah, um, she, um, Maureen's come to play tennis and, you know, she's going to be, I said, oh, yeah, she'll be fine today. So she gets out. She was a big woman, very overweight, guarded by the Secret Service. So they went down on the courts, goes on the courts, took them tea down, give them water, fruit, bowls of fruit and everything. She came quite a few times to the house. But one morning, there was one morning particular time, unexpectedly, the doorbell rang 
and I seen the car. It's a big black limousine. And I thought, is this Secret Service again? So I just automatically opened the gate. He said he had a parcel, a gift. So I opened the gate. The car comes in. Ronald Reagan gets out. And he says, um, is Mr. Wiseman home? I said, no, he's not home. He said, could you give him this, please? And what it was, was a photograph of Ronald Reagan at the White House. And he'd signed it to Mr. Wiseman. Wow. And I took it. And I put it in the house. Took it put it in the house. So I could feel that the job was coming to an end. And basically it did. That job had come to an end. Because he'd moved. He'd kept the house and he was thinking of turning the house into a museum. And I finally had notice. He gave me a great severance package with um, $25,000. And I left. And I went back to Santa Monica. And then I knew the phone was going to start ringing again. So the butler was on the move again. To Hawaii next time. Yeah. Yeah. Crazy. Kahala in Hilton. Hotel. The, the Kahala Hilton. <laughs>